And we are back, and we hope you're uh, you're having a good year. The vaccines are going out. We hope everybody is uh, uh, kind of lining up to get life back to normal again. We have an amazing interview this week with our good friend Doug Blush, yep. who is uh, one of the all-time great documentarians. Uh, and, and we go back, Tim, with Doug. We, we all did Veritas uh, segments for, for Ray together. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, yeah, Doug, a big part of that, and uh, really, really interesting. Uh, a filmmaker, of course, Doug, uh, involved with Icarus uh, a couple of years ago. That's right. I guess that yeah. was, that was uh, Oscar nominated, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, uh, Oscar nominated may even have won. Honestly, I, I, I lose track. Doug has been to the Oscars <laughs> like it's like he goes to the Oscars more often than than you know. Yeah. Uh, than anybody else I've ever known. Yeah, 2020 from Stardom, Doug. Is Doug yeah. That was, yeah. I know, so anyway, yeah, fantastic. And his new film is Rock Camp. It's amazing. It's wonderful. So we have a great interview with Doug about that. And uh, that'll that'll be at the end of the show. Um, a few other quick things. Just want to mourn the passing of the great Henry Aaron, mm. otherwise known as Hank Aaron. Not an actor, per se, but a certainly a cultural icon that I don't think um, I have seen the equal of in sports in my lifetime, with the possible exception of Muhammad Ali. Yeah, uh, Hammer and Hank Aaron. Uh, you know, it, it, as a kid growing up watching, you know, he was he was around for a long time, Hank Aaron. Um, so uh, when I when I did follow baseball in the late '60s, middle '70s, uh, you know, guys like Hank were still around, and you know, and he and, and he broke that Babe Ruth uh, 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 record and all of that kind of stuff. I do not know. I cannot think of. Uh, a film, say like a, a film, the level of Forty Two, you know, the great Jackie yeah. Robinson, you know, Chadwick Boseman, you know, celebrating yeah. the film. I cannot think of an equivalent for Hank Aaron. It's, it has there, there isn't one. There, there isn't one. You know, uh, it, it's interesting. Here's the th- here's the interesting thing about Hank Aaron, and I've talked to people about this too. I and the the thing is that movies need drama, and to have drama, you need flawed people and wonderful people make wonderful documentaries and biographies, but wonderful people don't really make great subjects for movies. And um, apart from his, his general life struggle, which was significant, you know, he grew up poor and, and completely self-made man. Um, but, but Hank Aaron, just not a, not a bad guy. He didn't beat anybody up. He didn't, he didn't drink too much. He didn't have a, you know, he didn't go to court. He didn't have any messy divorces. Like there, there aren't the, the, the things that usually make for a dramatic story just sort of aren't there. He's just a wonderful guy and he faced opposition and he beat it and he became a great athlete and a wonderful role model. There it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of, it's kind of <laughs> one of those things. He's, he's not, he's not exactly the, you know, Jackie was the first, you know, those first, yes, you know, always exactly. say about firsts. First this, yeah. first that, first whatever. Hank is not exactly a first. He was a guy in pursuit of a of a record, and the yeah. framing of that story. There's really only one framing to that story, uh, relatively speaking, and it has to do with the the trials and tribulations that he had to go through vis-a-vis race from that yeah. period, uh, in the sixties, you know, right up to when he broke the record. But but even that, um, uh, you know, framing such as it is. Ultimately, has sort of like a a wonderful sort of uh, denouement, you know, when he, he yeah. hits that home run, and uh, I, and uh, and all of the naysayers and the haters faded away. 
They all just I and, the and I remember that day. I you know I was not a baseball fan. Uh, I'm a soccer guy, but my father was a big baseball fan and loved it growing up. And my father saw Babe Ruth play. Yeah, like my father actually saw Babe Ruth hit a home run and possibly more. And and so that was something that was you know in his mind that record is never going to fall. That's just you know Babe the Babe is going to be the Babe forever. And slowly and surely, you know, Aaron just kept kept pumping them on and putting them in and, and pumping away and, and had that long career, kept playing, didn't go away, stayed healthy. And finally, people started to say, I think Hank Aaron's going to beat the record. Like it became a reality at a certain point when you just realized he wasn't going to retire. He wasn't going to stop. He had longevity. And, um, I remember I was a little kid and I was, I was about my daughter's age and I'm on the playground and a bunch of other kids just said, you know, did you hear Hank Aaron beat the, he, 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 you know, beat it. And, um, it was just like this. I was like, really, are you, are you kidding me? And my father was, was just so awestruck. He was so impressed, um, that somebody had done it. You know, it was like almost tears in his eyes at the, at the, at the, the fact that, somebody had actually beaten that record that was like the unassailable record that was never going to fall and i don't know that we have any more of those i really don't you, you uh, know it, it's it, it's an interesting because even as we sit here we talk about we talk about hank aaron and, and breaking babe's record and all that kind of stuff the reality is that the holder of that record is not hank aaron he hasn't held no. held, held for a long time Barry well, Bonds, as far, Barry Bonds, far as i'm concerned as far as i'm concerned it's, it's all, very complicated when you talk about yeah. steroids it, it, so, yeah. but, it, it became a thing of where we stopped talking about it. Yeah. When I was coming up, Mark McGuire was the guy on the hunt for that. Out of the yeah. work, you know, where we stopped talking about it with Hank Aaron. And yeah. no matter how many home runs, other, uh, you know, really, I mean, whether steroids, no steroids, whatever, uh, go on to do, it'll be Hank Aaron that we talk about. It, it will, it will always it. have been this thing that, that Babe held and that Hank broke. And yep. if another 50 guys hit eight, 900, a thousand home runs, we will not talk about them. Yep. <laughs> we'll talk there about, we're going to talk about the babe and Hank because some things just work that way. I don't know what that is, but it breaks the mold and we're not going to talk about it anymore. There it is. Uh, a little bit of news. And then we have a, uh, a listener mail, a really important listener mail we wanted to read. Uh, the news is that Cinedime has acquired Fandor. Now, those who don't know, Cinedime, of course, is a distributor. We talk about their movies every so often. Um, and they've been acquiring libraries. They acquired the film Detective not long ago, which has a streaming operation. Phil Hopkins, a longtime friend of this podcast, does the film detective releases, which are all old classic movie releases. And they, they do wonderful DVD and Blu-ray restorations of them. And, uh, and have a wonderful little streaming operation that, that really people should take a look at. And um, Phil Hopkins is now going to be in charge of, uh, of Fandor. So that's going to become part of Cinedime. And I think this is a really, really good consolidation. I'm not a big fan of giant corporate consolidation in the, in, in the media business. But when some of these smaller operations that have a hard time kind of competing in the marketplace with other smaller operations, when they all kind of pull together... It's a little bit like a like a like a homeowners association. You yeah. know, they 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 really uh, they're they're putting all of their strengths together. Ovid.tv is another one of those kinds of exercises. In any case, um, I think this is a great thing. Cindy Dime and Fandor and Phil Hopkins and the, well, the whole and the whole all point together. Is to reboot indie streaming. This is this is the this that's is it. The point of this, right? 
Yes, it is. It is to it is to to create a viable economic home for uh, for films that you know from around the world and independent films that would otherwise not easily get exposure elsewhere in the streaming world, uh, which is becoming very very brand oriented. Disney will only release stuff that's Disney. HBO Max is only going to do HBO Max branded and Warner branded stuff. You know, everything, everybody's branding their own stuff. So if you're, if you're outside the circle, how do you get in? How do you get access to something? Um, you know, there's Criterion, there's Ovid, there's, uh, there's, you know, Film Movement Plus, but those companies have to acquire you. And Fandor kind of has a different model. And I think this is, I think this is something that'll fly. I think there'll be really interesting things happening. And Phil Hopkins is a smart guy. And I, I hope we can get him on the podcast to, to talk about it at some point. Well, I, I wonder, sometimes, because I, you know, I've been thinking about, obviously, we've been thinking about this ever since uh, the pandemic started and all kinds of services, sort of um, uh, you know, the, the Limley's virtual streaming service. Um, there, there are a number of these, these yeah. small um, independent exhibitors uh, that's that's turned to 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 streaming services, branded streaming services, and I and I think you're exactly right. I think I just I have the feeling that if they were to simply sort of aggregate all under one roof, right? Yeah. Some sort yeah. of indie, whatever you want to call it, and every yeah. one of these sort of indie uh, exhibitors uh, let their product live under this one roof, but everybody would know that if you want to watch an independent film, you can go to one place. You don't have to yeah. figure out whether it's at, it, it's at you know here or it's streaming there. You you know that if the indie film, you can go find it streaming here, and and for filmmakers, man, that would just be fantastic for filmmakers. It'd be wonderful. It'd be wonderful. You know, your you, your film would basically stream in every independent streaming under one under one roof, and you you just forgot a way to split the dough. I think we're I think we're going to see see things move in that direction. And I think this Fandor deal, uh, you know, migrates us there. I don't think it gets us fully there, but it certainly is is a step in that direction. You know, uh, we just you and I and, and Mark just exchanged an email with. Uh, um, oh no, no, it wasn't an email. It was it was it was a Facebook comment. I yeah. take it back. I get I get our conversations mixed up. No, it was Andy Andy Klein on Facebook asked me whatever happened to Patrice Lacant. Um, cause you know, I, I, we were huge Patrice Leconte fan, uh, Patrice Leconte fans. He had those oh, amazing yeah, movies, 90s, yeah. you know, all through the nineties and Paramount classics released a lot of those. My friend Ruth was running Paramount classics at the time with David Dinnerstein and they acquired and released those, the widow of St. Pierre and, you know, man on the train and a lot, you know, yeah, wonderful stuff. And, and he's still making movies, but there ever since the disintegration of the independent distribution companies here paramount classics being wiped out around 2005 and six he has a hard time getting his films sold overseas now most of them lately have been comedies you know he's made some very funny comedies in the last few years um but i think of his last five or six films only one of them was released here and it was on on dvd not even blu-ray so um you know something something like fandor or like what you were just talking about that opens the door right that says hey now you can have access to the market and you don't have to play this song and dance at film markets and and you don't have to sort of um you know get 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 your head cut off in the deal uh so i think um i think i think it's a, i think the future is i'm tentative in saying it but i do think the future is bright in that regard i think these models are going to pan out mm. Um, so we got a great email from longtime listener Chevelle Dixon, and uh, I, I'd really like to read it, and, and then we'll just talk for a second about what he brings up. But he says, Dear Digigods, there's been something on my mind regarding film criticism. I felt ever since the death of the great Roger Ebert, a vacuum was created. The unfortunate thing is 
what has taken his place. The democratization of film criticism because of Twitter and other social media platforms has allowed anybody to be a film critic. Not a critic in the Ebert sense. Most criticism I see comes from people on film Twitter who look at film through a postmodern lens or a social justice view and contort films to fit what agenda they have. I had grown more disillusioned with these film critics, in quotes, over the years, and last year was my breaking point, the discourse over Joker that made, uh, that made me upset and frustrated. There was too much of criticizing the film before it came out, sneering at Venice for awarding it the Golden Lion, assuming it would cause outbreaks of violence akin to the Aurora shooting in 2012. The list goes on, sadly. Mainly, it, w- uh, it was looked at askance because it was directed by Todd Phillips. Say what you want about his films, many I haven't seen, but I always give the film uh, give a film a benefit of the doubt. I felt Ebert did, and some film critics do still, but not many that I see. How film Twitter pitched Joker as some horrible evil that must be vanquished was unbelievable, but completely in line with the hive mind that film Twitter is. To make a long story short, I miss Ebert, and for my film reviews, I've tried to be fair and give a good analysis of the film I'm talking about. I've learned more about the craft of writing and the various disciplines that go into making a film. I bought one of the film craft books on film editing, which is what I've wanted to do for the longest time. I have a good idea what makes a film work and understand what goes wrong when a film is terrible. I just wished a lot of online critics knew the same. Sincerely, Chevelle Dixon. And uh, I, 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 Chevelle, I want to thank you for, for that really heartfelt email. I think I, I, the other listeners needed to hear it because I think a lot of people feel the same way. Certainly those of us who once upon a time were gainfully employed <laughs> by uh, doing that um, feel the same way. And, uh, you know, it, it's true. And uh, my, my response was that, you know, this is uh, hopefully we're going to have a turnaround someday. I do kind of see a place coming where Rotten Tomatoes is not just an aggregation of a lot of named, uh, names and faces that are assigned a number, but where we get back to names and faces. And I, and I do feel like we're gonna, eventually going to slingshot our way back. Um, Tim, you had an interesting comment too. Um, yeah, it, look, it, 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 it's, it's, it's sort of a simple thing. One has to, con- to consider the source. Um, um, so um, what he's talking about are people who write reviews of movies uh, or, or make reviews of movies. Yeah. And, and he's absolutely right. Sure. Democracy, anybody can do it. Anybody can do it. And, and, and of course, now it, it, anybody can do it and sort of broadcast or uh, um, their opinion uh, out there in a blog or on a website or a podcast, whatever it, it might be. Now, that's all fine and dandy. I don't really have any problem with that. Um, but I do think that the um, that the audience, uh, that those folks out there listening to us, Chevelle, um, have to take into consideration the source. So you so you so you need to do exactly that. Anyone can uh, absolutely proffer an opinion. Not everyone will be proffering a informed opinion, uh, an, an opinion built on on something other than literally just their opinion. You and I often joke about, you know, uh, we do we do Film Week, uh, the radio program that we work. And we talk about a lot of stuff on on on, on those shows, and, and sure, we'll we'll tell you whether or not we like a movie, but we often remind folks that the least important thing we will ever tell you about a movie is whether or not we like it. That's it's, such it's, a great point. Such a great point. The least important yeah. thing we'll ever tell you. Every other thing I say about a, a, a piece of cinema might be useful to you. Whether or not I like it, well, that's just me. <laughs> and frankly, yeah. you shouldn't concern yourself with whether or not I like yeah. it. Everything else I say will matter. I promise you it will. It will be informed and hopefully fair and everything else. 
And and see, that's what I think people always appreciated about Roger Ebert's reviews. Whether Roger Ebert, Roger Ebert liked a movie or not, I didn't care. I disagreed with him on so many movies, but I always read his reviews. Yes. I always read them because there was always going to be an observation in there that I thought, well, that's really a, that's a great thing to point out. I think you're totally wrong in your opinion of the film, but I'm glad you pointed that out. Yeah. These, these things that he will understand and explain about cinema yeah. and how it will add up to an opinion uh, in terms of whether or not an individual likes the movie. It may not add up to the exact same opinion for me, but that information, that deep dive in understanding the nature of cinema in the first place, the nature of this movie, the filmmakers who made it, all of that kind of stuff, totally useful. I like it. I don't like it. Ah, who cares? Uh, but, yeah. you know, it's it, it's an opinion that's there. But um, anyway, to, to to the folks who are out there, that's what you have to do. You have to, you know, it's a buyer beware kind of thing. Uh, yeah. And then eventually you will hone uh, your choice of film critic down in the same way that you hone your, 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 your choice of films down. Um, um, and you'll know what you like and who you like, and that's who you want to talk to or, or have talk to you. I guess we'll put it that way. Yep, I agree. Well, Chevelle, thanks again for that question, and uh, it, it's you know it is it is important, and we're we're all going to kind of sit around and uh, we'll we'll hope for the best. But it's a, it's the wild west right now as far as film criticism. But I do think there's there's light at the end of the tunnel. Now, dude, I, I don't want to 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 suggest for one second that I that, that I'm against. Uh, diversity of voices coming into the uh, criticism realm. You know, we're both the members of LAFCA and we're yes. really big about that. You know, women yes. and, and uh, the critics of color. But again, uh, informed, uh, expert uh, uh, people of diversity offering those opinions, not just well, there just because you're a woman or just no. because you're black or just because you're Latino. That won't I get it. No. Uh, agreed and and i think something you know there has been some criticism of us for doing that and i and i'll i'll just kind of leave it at this to push back on that a little bit um it, it's one thing when your job is to manufacture you know faucet fixtures well everybody uses the same damn faucet fixtures plumbing is universal but movies are an art and they come from every corner of the globe and they are they come from every culture and they express personal experiences and you we celebrate the diversity of points of view and culture and, and language and all the things that show up in movies. I mean, especially if you're, you know, you, you love foreign films, you celebrate that. So I do think that it is a valid point that we want as many, we want just as much richness in the diversity of the people who evaluate the movies as we get from those who make the movies. And um, very often, you know, that's the thing I love in LAFCA. LAFCA has such a rich collection of people now. And it's fascinating how people come at different movies with different perspectives. You know, um, we, we have, look, very often the people who are hardest on Asian films in our group are the Asian <laughs> members of the group, yeah. frankly. Yeah. You know, uh, it's, it's really kind of fascinating. You'll, you'll have uh, some of the, like, for example, I, I had this experience once with a friend of mine who's Korean. And I had seen a Korean film and I loved it. And I sat, I had lunch with her afterwards and I said, oh my gosh, I just saw this film. It's so gorgeous. It's beautiful. And she looks at me with this sneer and she goes, it's about a guy and a girl and it's a period thing and they run away in the forest and they do this. And I was like, oh yeah. She goes, yeah, there's a lot of that. 
<laughs> and like my enthusiasm for a film from her country was just shot down. It was just wrecked. You know, it's a soap opera where I come from. Yeah. So, so you know that that kind of thing is so refreshing to experience, and it's wonderful to have those voices in Lafka and to be able to have those conversations and those debates, and uh, and it's really refreshing. And that's I, I hope we get more of that on Rotten Tomatoes as well because there isn't enough right now, frankly. Yeah. So let me, I'm going to talk about just a few things real quickly. We're going to launch into a lot of TV today. Uh, before we get into it, we do have some exploitation stuff left and also some, a couple of wonderful criterions I want to talk about right out of the gate. Um, one is a film a lot of people have probably never seen. It's called The Ascent. It is an absolutely delightful Russian film from 1977. Probably delightful isn't quite the, the way to put it with any kind of a Russian film. Uh, it's, it's tough. It's really tough. But The Ascent is, uh, is by the, uh, the late uh, great female Russian director, Larisa uh, Shapitko, who, of course, was married at one point to Elam Klimov, who did his own masterpiece in Come and See, one of the great power couples yeah. in the history of cinema, and, and of which there have been you know a few. And um, this really is an, a, an extraordinary masterpiece in, uh, in its own way. The Ascent is just absolutely beautiful. It, um, this went on to win the Golden Bear at the Berlin Film Festival in 1977, which nobody paid attention to because that was the year of Star Wars and Close Encounters. And um, it takes place during World War II uh, and follows a couple of uh, Russian partisans who are trying to survive the, the the horrors of the really really tough winter in uh, the region which today is is Belarusia. It's a, an independent country today, but at the time it was just the uh, Belarusian Republic, and uh, they're fighting Nazis. And it just it it's really a, a wonderful allegory. It's also a film of survival. It uh, it's shot in black and white, but in black and white, the snowy backdrop, the wintry backdrop, is just Bergmanesque. It's gorgeous. It is poetic. It is an incredible film. It has a ton of beautiful extras on it, including a 1967 short film by Shapitko called mm. uh, "The Homeland of Electricity," and uh, then there's also a um, a tribute to her that was made in 1980 by L.M. Klimov after she passed away. Um, there are a couple of other documentaries on here. Uh, it's just, it's, you know, there's a, um, an introduction by her son, Anton Klimov, that, you know, her son with LM Klimov. It's just absolutely a, a beautiful select scene commentary with scholar Daniel Bird. It is a, it is a, it's, you got to get this. If you haven't seen the film, it's such a revelation. It's one of the things where if you go look there, there, cause not a lot of these films have trailers that you can easily find, but you can find the trailer for this film. Uh, and it really is so gorgeous. Beautifully done. Yeah. Uh, and then we also have the um, uh, Rolling Thunder Review, a Bob Dylan story by Martin Scorsese. Uh, this is this came out uh, in 2019, about a year and a half ago. I think it was just about a year and a half ago it came out. It's about two and a half hours long. And Martin Scorsese's documentaries are really not given enough credit. He just kind of does these music, these nostalgic music documentaries every once in a while. Yes. Uh, this one is fabulous. It's just a great look back at 1975. And, uh, and, you know, when Bob Dylan was, was uh, going on this amazing tour that they called the Rolling Thunder Review that included, you know, everybody from Joan Baez to, you know, all these other figures at the time, counterculture figures, you know, rock music figures. Uh, and um, it's really, it's, it's more, it's, not, it's kind of a documentary. It's kind of a concert film. It's kind of neither. It's a little bit of both. But it's really wonderful, and Scorsese does some of his best ever work with this. He, you can tell he just loves it, and there are heaps of extras, including stuff that never got into the film. 
and uh, a restoration demonstration that's pretty cool. Shows you how far restoration technology has come. Yeah. Nice custom packaging, too. The Rolling Thunder Review, a Bob Dylan story by Martin Scorsese. What's it, what the, the, he did the, uh, what was it, Last Waltz, I think it was. The, the, the Last Waltz the is the other one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yep, yeah. A few other new films. Um, uh, the uh, the Chris the the Christmas in quotes film Fat Man, uh, starring Mel <laughs> starring Mel Gibson as Santa Claus, is quite a hoot. Uh, I keep seeing I keep seeing Mel Gibson at the playground. It's the funniest <laughs> damn thing. It really is. Like especially after Fat Man, it just cracks me up because you know we we have a, we have a playground here and and Mel Mel has a couple of kids that go down and play and my daughter plays and next thing I know my daughter's playing with Mel Gibson's kids and has no idea who they are or who he is. It's very funny. But um, Fat Man is basically it, it means to be a comedy kind of, but the idea here is that Santa Claus is a rough and tumble gruff guy who's starting to hate his job because he keeps getting shot at by kids when he flies his sleigh. And the government isn't paying as much as it used to. So now they want him to do a little bit of industrial military work on the side. Meanwhile, there's this really nasty little kid who um, got a lump of coal from Santa Claus because he's bad. And the kid, he's this rich, you know, sociopath who then hires his usual muscle, Walton Goggins, to kill Santa Claus. <laughs> well, of course, you wind up with an overtly um, Sergio Leone ending, even with the complete Sergio Leone music, where it's just Mel Gibson going mano a mano with Walton Goggins. And it is so brutal. It is so bloody and violent. It's so incredible. And you're like, this is a Santa Claus movie? Um, <laughs> yes, it is. It's called Fat Man, and I love it. And Marianne Jean-Baptiste should get credit, too, for playing Mrs. Claus. She's really good, and it's really – it's just uh, – Who is – who are these brothers? Who are these 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 Nelms? The guys, I don't Ian, know. Ian, 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 I don't even say it's the other guy. Who are they? Where yeah. the hell are they from? Where Ian, they, Ian, Ian and Esham Nelms, I guess is how you, how you pronounce it. Yeah, uh, the, the Nelms brothers came out of the blue. They've made a few other films, I think. I don't know much else about them, but boy, did they kind of pull this off. The tone is is really difficult. A lot of people criticize this film for the tone, but I, I think the tone is what they were going for. I think they want you to wrestle with this movie a little bit. And it's so different. I'm so grateful for it. Uh, it, it freaks me out a little bit because I laughed myself silly at the trailer. And then I was watching the movie for film week and I was like, oh, I don't think I want to laugh at this. This is a little disturbing. Um, but uh, it, it, it is fun. And Mel really, Mel's the right casting for it because he brings a lot of baggage to the part. Yeah. Um, we also have Dean Cain and Christy Swanson in Trafficked, A Parent's Worst Nightmare. This is a little bit of a, a kind of faith-adjacent film about uh, sex trafficking. Um, it is a, um, it's, it's not quite the film you really want it to be, but I, I gotta tell you, it's, it's, I, I'm grateful for any movie that, that goes into this, uh, and deals with this subject matter. Um, it, it's, it, there's more good being done just by this movie existing than not existing. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a straight to DVD thing from Kino Lorber. It's called Trafficked and, um, I, I it does come with a recommendation. Yellow Rose is on Blu-ray. Did you see Yellow Rose this last year, Tim? Yellow Rose. That's not that's not ringing a bell. Let me look at it. Yellow Yellow Rose. This it's this wonderful, wonderful uh, kind of immigrant story um, about this young immigrant girl who uh, you know, and and country music and her love of country music. Um, you know, she's a she's this Filipina girl and she's this little Texas town and she just wants to be a country singer. 
and uh, it's just it's it's absolutely wonderful. Uh, you know, we've we've Betty Buckley was in the one where she plays the uh, yeah. the Irish girl who becomes an you know country singer. This is a I remember, yeah. A little bit of the same thing too, you know. Uh, Eva uh, Noblazada, who plays the lead part here, is a revelation. She's got a huge career ahead of her. I just think it's it's wonderful. So I I think this is a really touching, super sweet film. A good production from Stage Six, released by Sony on uh, Blu-ray. Also, um, Once Upon a River by as long as we're speaking about Rose, the filmmaker here is Harula Rose. The star is Kanadi. Uh, Della Serna. This is a film movement um, release on DVD. Did not really get a theatrical release. Film movement has put this out, and um, this is a this is the story. Uh, Kennedy Della Serna plays this Native American teenager who goes on. Uh, she runs off to look for her uh, mother, from whom she's been estranged yeah. for a very very long time. And it's a road trip. It's an allegory. It's kind of you know Nathaniel Hawthorne esque in that regard. But it's um, um, it's a it's a really very powerful and very touching kind of uh, allegory uh, of you know the American myth and you know uh, the rough edges and the the price of it. It's 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 quite a good film. I wish it were on DVD uh, on Blu-ray. It's only on DVD. It's called Once Upon a River by Harula Rose. And then the last of our new films is a pretty good little scare fest. Uh, come play. He's good at taking friends. That's our tagline. Uh, this is, uh, you know, uh, it's not the scariest horror film I've ever seen. It's not even really kind of a, I mean, it is a horror film, but it's it's almost more of a structured, more of a thriller, more of a traditional thriller than a, than a horror film. It's kind um, of a techie kind of thing with the with the cell phones and the stuff. Yeah, I feel like I feel like it's kind of J horror adjacent. Uh, it's got a little bit of that the ring going on and. Uh, from that moment of J horror about uh, 15, 20 years ago. Um, but yeah, this is, uh, this is about a boy who's just way, way too into his devices, his phone and his tablet. And um, it, there is a, uh, a, let's say a, a, a monster wants to get, wants to use his devices as a portal into this world. Kind of like how the television was a portal for uh, Samara in, in the ring. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, now the, parents have to get involved and stop it it's got it's 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 fun um it's it's spooky it's scary it's tense it, it kind of does you know pushes all the right buttons i think the it's a little you know it's a little bit light compared to what even you get in stranger things but uh you know and uh, movies anywhere code on it um and then just a few exploitation titles to uh to make mention of real quickly got some here from mondo macabro seven women for satan that's a family film um this is from 1977 this is uh it's a french exploitation film that was apparently never screened in france and mondo macabro has it um made in uh actually it was made in 74 but it was i think released in 77 so i think that's what it is anyway it's just you know it's a straight up low budget satanic thing uh lots of gore and you know hor hor horrific stuff in it the plot's kind of irrelevant um then there's also sins of the flesh from mondo macabro which is uh, also from the same year, 1974, also French. Um, doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. It kind of tries to be uh, scary and exploitative and horrific and, uh, and, and sexy all at the same time. Um, the, the director of um, this film is a, kind of a notorious figure who worked under a pseudonym, Claude Moulot, worked under the pseudonym of Frederick Lanzac. 
And um, so, you know, it's kind of hard to necessarily track down a lot of his films, but this is one of them. And, um, you know, Anne Liebert, if you know her, she was in uh, the Jess Franco film, Erotic Rites of Frankenstein. She's also a star of this. And then a couple other exploitation films here. Rituals with Hal Hallbrook is uh, just a pretty straightforward, uh, you know, uh, satanic ritual movie. Uh, it, it, it deserves better, really. Um, Hal Holbrook is not well served by this necessarily. This is from 1976. And uh, it's just a, it's a, you know, it's a psycho movie. A uh, guy going after campers and, you know, not, not much else to it. But it's, it's one of those movies that has kind of a little bit of a cult status. And then the last three here, uh, Tinto Rara, Tiger Shark. This is from uh, Kino Lorber, and this is a uh, 1978 movie that is clearly trying to do what Jaws did just a few years earlier, but without spending a single dime, not a dime. <laughs> it's just people fighting a tiger shark off the coast of Mexico. Uh, the plot doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but you know what? Some of the stuff in it is is kind of funny. There's a great audio commentary with Troy Howarth and Rod Barnett that is uh, is actually really fun to listen to. This was based on a book by Ramon Brava, which had to be a ripoff of Jaws. The only real reason to see this, I've got to say, is because uh, Basil Polidorus did a great score for it, yeah. and it, it just elevates the whole movie. Um, a little bit less serious is this uh, Blu-ray from a 4K transfer of Giant from the Unknown. This is a deluxe edition taken from a 4K transfer uh, right off of the negative. The um, This is from the film detective, Phil Hopkins' operation that we were talking about earlier, uh, who is now running Fandor. And it's from the library of Wade Williams, my namesake, who was kind of a... Uh, his library he made, produced a lot and directed a lot of exploitation stuff, mainly in the 70s. And um, this is an early one. This is from 1958. It is um, uh, kind of a it's, – it's sort of more of a thriller than anything straightforward exploitation. It's really not – it's not bad at all, actually. Uh, it's, it's, it all kind of centers around – searching for uh, ancient artifacts left by the conquistadors and how those artifacts do what you, the King Tut stuff usually does, which is, you know, um, creates all kinds of horrific, mysterious uh, stuff in the present. You know, it drudges up. The mummy is sort of the original model for this. Um, so Giant from the Unknown, the deluxe edition, kind of in the same vein. And then the last one here is uh, Death Laid an Egg with Gina Lollobrigida and Jean-Louis Trintignant. This is uh, not exactly a, a an exploitation film, but it is a cult film. It's been released by Cult Epics. This was made in 1968. And, uh, you know, Gina Lollobrigida and Jean-Louis Trintignant are both really, really outstanding performers. But they would do kind of weird, fringy things every once in a while. And um, the uh, this is a serial killer story that has a really interesting little noir twist to it that you aren't going to see coming, even though I've told you there's a twist. Uh, it's, it's, it's kind of like high-grade Italian horror, high-grade giallo, in, in a sense. Um, but it really does belong to that, that world. It just has a better cast and a better script and better direction than you would normally expect. The director is uh, Giulio Questi. So... Um, you know, an exploitation film with uh, with a film credentials, let's call it. And uh, that is from Cult Epics, Death Laid an Egg. Definitely check that one out. 
So, Tim, let's move on to some TV. What else do we have on the TV front? Well, uh, House Divided is the one that popped up that I found most interesting. Uh, House Divided is kind of a neat uh, series set here in Los Angeles, and I like the backdrop of this uh, 2019 series. Um, uh, I think we have season two. Uh, basically, the way this series is shaped, it's kind of like Empire, but not, not nearly as corny or melodramatic or soap opera-ish. As, uh, as Empire. So uh, the series is set around this black family, this very powerful black family in contemporary Los Angeles, but they are descendants of a black woman, a former slave who escaped the South and came to Los Angeles and became the first millionaire, uh, extremely wealthy uh, woman, women, black women in the country, in, in, in the city. And over the years, uh, you know, her descendants, and uh, she has a particular daughter great-granddaughter who passes away as this series starts and what this series is about is how the family this family is reacting to the passing away of this very important sort of matriarch you got some interesting people in the film including lawrence hilton jacobs of course goes all the way back to uh what was that cotter welcome back cotter and and, yeah. and all of that and all of that paula jai parker uh and and whatnot it's a pretty good series i like it it's kind of like reminded me of like a dynasty or something like that only within the context of this black family in los angeles with this deep thought of history or a falcon crest might even be a better example it's not a bad show it really isn't a bad show i've seen a few episodes uh i think i think lawrence hilton jacobs is still a really fine actor i think the cotter kind of followed him around a little too too heavily um it was great it, you know the the jackson family miniseries where he plays you know pop jackson uh i think was one of his better better moments but um i would also point out too that this this premise of a very very successful um, uh, black businesswoman from that period is is I don't know if they mean if they were drawing on this but there is precedent in the story of Lovey Yancey who is a great icon of mine who founded Fat Burger my favorite fast food restaurant yeah so long live Lovey and uh, and uh, and that and that great story um, I'm gonna make quick mention too of uh, a couple of things that uh, that did come in fairly recently. One is season one of Border Town, which I've uh, I've kind of followed a little bit of, of its existence more than watching it. It's, this is a Finnish series. It's a crime thriller uh, from Finland, and a lot of really interesting shows are showing up. By the way, um, you know, new on Netflix is uh, the is uh, the this the new um, um, uh, uh, series with Omar C, who was in our show. Oh, uh, yeah, I, actually, yeah, you've seen it. Tripping. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, yeah. Have, it's. I mean, it's. It, it is. It is officially now the. It's based on a. Uh, it's called Lupin. L U P I N. It's based on a French um, graphic novel series, and it got seventy million viewers, like right out of the gate. It's the most watched series in the history of Netflix around the world. Most of it, obviously, in French speaking parts of the world, but still, it's like. Freaking the high more than anything else, more than you know the the Queen's Gambit or any of that stuff. So Omar, who was in our little almost Oscar nominated short, is uh, is all the rage on Netflix. So see yeah, if you can get a little Netflix, traction out of that. When I saw on Netflix, I think it was dubbed, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah well, I don't care if it's dubbed or not. I, I'm going to watch it. I'm going to watch it in French, and uh, I'm going to enjoy it. In any case, Finland has some good shows, and Border Town is one of them. I could see this being remade as well. These are eleven episodes. This is season one. And um, it is uh, what's what's it, it takes place basically in this border town between Finland and Russia, which have very very tense history, and um, it's kind of like you know uh, uh, um, rural or um, um, 
even more than rural, like like mountain noir, I think is what it is, probably a better way to put it. But dealing with murder in the in serial killers in these, you know, these these this in this really, really rugged area. Very, very cool. And I love Finnish filmmaking to begin with. I don't think there's enough of it. So good on on Kino for that. And then the uh, the Good Lord Bird from oh, Sh- yeah. from Showtime, their their limited series. Ethan Hawk. But they did, yes. Uh, Ethan Hawke plays John Brown in this, and uh, he's just so freaking good. Uh, I would never have cast Ethan Hawke as John Brown. I just, I, it would never have entered my mind. He doesn't have the the physical stature. John Brown was big and imposing, and you know, tall and lean and kind of crazy. And I, yeah, the face, you know. But damn, if Ethan Hawke doesn't just rise into that and and occupy that stature, even if he doesn't have it physically. Um, very, very impressive. And, uh, you know, I wish this was on Blu-ray. It's not, it's only on DVD, but if you can see it by see it in whatever form you can, it's really the, good. The, the, I think his name is Hubert, uh, 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 du jour. Um, yeah. the little boy. Yeah. Uh, who more or less narrates the entire series. Just an ec- excellent turn. I think it's a short run series. I think it's only seven or eight episodes, something like that, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah, and it's, it's about that, about six yeah. and a half hours. It's just worth it to just worth it to just knock out the whole Eggum thing. I I live in Pasadena, which is not terribly far from a community called Altadena, which is just you know up the hill from me a little bit. And and uh, of the few of the few of John Brown's children who survived uh, the massacre at Harper's Ferry and then uh, all of the things that happened, one of his sons uh, uh, fled out west here to the community of Altadena, just above where I live. In wow! His, in his in his marker, his grave marker, John Brown's last living son's grave marker is uh, wow can be found up there. It's kind of in a hidden spot. It's very interesting. very impressive. Yeah, Grant this mini this TV miniseries, executive produced by Leonardo DiCaprio as well as others, um, which basically is, is uh, kind of a comprehensive series about you you the uh, Union uh, uh, general and eventual president Ulysses S. Grant. Uh, and it was very, very good. Grant being played mostly by Justin Salinger uh, in this film. Did you get a chance to watch any of the Grant? Uh, uh, I did. It's, uh, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's one of those docudrama e things. It's, it's, it's sort of not entirely one or the other, yeah. right? It, it, it's, uh, it sort of blends the two to be true to the whole History Channel thing. They want you to take it more seriously than, some, than a pure drama. But all the dramatic reenactment stuff is, is certainly good enough to be any to be right up there with any regular miniseries so they're splitting the the difference for their audience but um really the 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 uh everything in it is spot on the historical accuracy of it and and i do i did enjoy the fact that i kind of felt for the first time because i've seen grant depicted in so many movies and i felt for the first time i kind of was getting the soul of grant you know he was grant was like teddy roosevelt this larger than life figure who was on the one hand a scholar an incredibly educated and smart man, but on the other, a completely insane, rough-hewn, you know, uh, Wild West figure. Mm. And we forget that those things could live in the same people at that time, and sometimes they had to. Um, But that said, it is still my second favorite performance of Grant. My favorite is the guy who played Ulysses S. Grant on a few episodes of the Wild Wild West. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah. This, this, This is kind of a young Grant here. Um, uh, Edie Falco had a new series back in 2020 and 2020 called Tommy. Uh, Paul Ignacio c- created series where she is playing a uh, a cop who becomes the first female chief of, 
chief of police of the Los Angeles Police Department, something that's still yet to happen. So, you know, a little speculative fiction. And I think it's sort of an interesting series. You know, it's, it's, there's nothing particularly uh, new about the series. Kind of feels like, you know, uh, many of the sort of L.A. set cop series that you've seen before. But nevertheless, uh, the concept in and of itself is sort of interesting, and it was fairly well done. Uh, if if, says, if, if, honey, if Edie Falco, if Edie Falco in a badge gets you all hot and bothered, then this is the show for you. Yeah. <laughs> we have we talked about the first seasons, first two seasons of Babylon Berlin recently, which has been quite the rage among uh, a lot of people. And uh, the third season is now out, 12 episodes. Uh, this is, of course, this, this wonderful Weimar recreation of Berlin uh, during the period between the wars. And uh, it, it, is a, it is very, very well done. It's a German series, of course, in German with subtitles. Uh, but it's very, very well done. And uh, high production value, great performances, and it's it 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 dovetails with history in that way that Downton Abbey did as well. Uh, in in many respects, even more so because Germany in nineteen in the late nineteen twenties was kind of Berlin as a city was ground zero with everything that was happening and that would happen eventually in Germany. So you know it is right at the crossroads of so many historical currents, and I'm I'm dying to see where they take this show in the next few years because if they can keep this going for another three or four seasons, you're you're going to be dealing with the rise of Nazism and and a whole lot of other really you know the the Olympics and it's it's gonna you're gonna get to a a really really interesting place so. Um, keep this going as long as you can. Babylon Berlin season three, really, really cool. And, um, you know, it'll be nice to, to get a box set of these things at some point too. Yeah. Neat. Uh, blind spot, the fifth and final season blind spot. I, you know, look, I got into blind spot when it first started, this beautiful young woman whose body is covered in these tattoos. Uh, and the FBI and the FBI folks were trying to she can't remember who she is or what the tattoos mean. They have to read the tattoos and sort of sort out what the heck is going on. And it's been going on for, Five years now, they've sorted, sorted most of that stuff out over the course of uh, the the run of the series Blind Spot. Um, you know, which which, like I said, I, I gave I gave it one or two seasons there. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, Blind Spot. Rob Brown's in the series. Um, uh, in pretty, I don't know. Did you go any deeper than the than the first season or two of Blind I, Spot, man? I, I did not. Never, never watched a single episode of it, uh, unfortunately. But. Uh, but I will use that as an opportunity to uh, pivot to something completely unrelated, which is which which are which is some stuff that my daughter uh, will probably enjoy. I'm still debating whether I wanted to see it. By the way, just as a tangent, my daughter has gone completely nuts for for Chuck Jones, like nuts yeah, in, for for in, in a way that I never imagined she would. Like I, you know, Bugs Bunny. Who doesn't love Bugs Bunny? But she has watched The Rabbit of Seville. 15 16 times in the last three days like she just keeps watching it over and over and over it's just surreal she doesn't even know I, getting a classical music education uh she all she knows what the what the you know she understands that there's that it's based on an opera she kind of understands what opera is but she just loves every second of it she, she recreates it she laughs it's the craziest thing uh anyway what i've got here is not chuck jones it's garfield which our, our good friend Mark always hated uh, as a comic and as a, an animated show. Anyway, we've got two movies, two Garfield movies that are CGI animated. Uh, Garfield's Fun Fest and Garfield Gets Real in one. And then we've got Garfield and Friends, the original TV series, season three, which has been remastered. I'm not quite sure why. It's an okay show. 
Um, it's fine. You know, it, it's sort of the same thing over and over again. So if you don't, if you don't like Garfield, you're not going to like either of those. And then um, a little bit cooler is the twelfth season of SpongeBob SquarePants yeah. uh, from Nickelodeon, which uh, I, I used to hate this show and I thought it was lame until I had a child who now goes to school with other kids who love SpongeBob, and I'm slowly appreciating what it does and and getting a sense for uh, what makes it so popular with kids. Twelfth season, arguably the best season that that it, it has had. It keeps getting better. The writing keeps getting sharper. So that is now on DVD as well. Um, I see Yellowstone uh, here. What's uh, this? Season three of Yellowstone. Uh, you know, when, this, yeah. when this series when this series first started, um, I thought to myself, well, look, Kevin Costner, uh, going to going to going to television. But you know, I got to tell you, this series has always had a sort of um, sweeping and grand sort of nature to it. It always put me in mind of some of the classic series I watched growing up, like The Big Valley. But remember Barbara Stanwyck? I think it was Barbara Stanwyck. Right? Yes, it was. Sure was. Uh, Barbara you know, Stanwyck and Lee Majors. Lee Majors and all, you know, all yeah. yeah, young Lee Majors, older Barbara Stanwyck. She had been a movie star for years and years and years, came to television, did The Big Valley. The, Yellowstone is sort of like analogous to in, in you know contemporary uh, to what they yeah. were doing with a show like the, the, the Big Valley. Yeah, I mean, back when I was watching TV in the city thoroughly enjoy uh this is season three yellowstone and uh you know taylor sheridan created the show uh no longer on it but taylor sheridan has kind of become the the new western guy he's helped resurrect the western in modern times you know contemporary stories like hell and high water yeah um which which sort of are modern day westerns and uh and and have sort of the same veneer it's a it's it's a, it's a hell of a show it's doing a really good 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 thing i think big sky is trying to replicate it a little bit and not doing a very good job yeah, and it has that david, whole, david kelly thing yeah that david kelly thing with that whole sort of mystery thing going on and yeah yeah uh we also have the complete series of marseille uh liberty equality rivalry uh from kino um so i have very mixed feelings about this show this was on netflix uh the uh Here's, oh, I don't even know where to, where to even kind of begin on this. Um, uh, Florent Siri is was the associate producer of this and kind of and, and one of the main directors of this thing. Uh, and I had interviewed him for for Colco a few years back before this started. And I'm a big fan of of, uh, of Florent Siri. Um, but the here's the other thing. I also lived in Marseille, so I know this city very well. I know, uh, you know, the, the day before I arrived in Marseille and back in the 1980s, it was a very violent city at the time. It was still coming out of all of that, that French connection, drug trade stuff that had been going on in the seventies. And the day before I got there, uh, someone, uh, had been executed at, at a stoplight when someone walking through the crosswalk in front of them pulled out a sawed off shotgun and blew them away through the windshield of their car. Ugh. That that's what was, it's like Chicago type stuff, right? Like gangland Chicago in the 1930s. Um, it was that kind of stuff that was going on in Marseille at the time. So I know how sort of it, the, 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 the impression that if the French have of Marseille, it's a rough town, it's a tough town. A lot of rugged stuff goes on. It's, you know, Port City, you know, all that stuff. Gerard Depardieu, absolutely the right guy to be the political heavy in this thing. Um, you know, and it's mostly about the political battles. Uh, Gerard Depardieu is the mayor of the city who's a very iron-fisted autocratic figure and, you know, all of the, 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 the give and take of this thing. But 
um, ultimately, I just didn't find the show very engaging. It did. It felt like it cut a lot of corners. It was a little too much soap opera, and it didn't really give you that taste for the city. I, if I see a show about Marseille, I want it to be like the French Connection or even the French movie The Connection mm. with uh, Jean Dujardin, which was set just a few years earlier than than I was there. Which is also very much about that. You just you can taste the air. You can taste the. The, the 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 water the salt in the water and it just this didn't get it for me so a lot of people like this show i'm going to cut them a lot of slack for that it just didn't work for me i might be too close to it but anyway marseille the complete series from kino on blu-ray nah. uh 68 whiskey i only got a chance to watch a few 68 whiskeys it's set in afghanistan uh interesting uh, sort of sort of sort of mix of uh troops uh, at, a, at a fort, a uh, uh, medic sort of uh, operating uh, base uh, in Afghanistan, and it's sort of an interesting show. You know, a lot, a lot of chit chat about the politics of it all, and and and, and working with the community. Yeah, you know, there haven't been a whole lot of stuff that's been set during any of our contemporary wars, at least not the television. True. Show, anyway, uh, if we think about the you know the, the stuff that was set during the Vietnam War, uh, you know, yeah. It, 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 it hasn't been a whole lot of stuff that's really made it for me. This is, is, is at least fairly straightforward um, in its treatment of, uh, of being deployed to Afghanistan uh, with these medics. It's not MASH uh, or anything like that, but, you know, it has its funny moments, but mostly it's big drama. Uh, got a few other things here. There, Let me run through these real quickly. Um, uh, Acorn Original Series, an Acorn Original on DVD only, not Blu-ray, is The Nest with uh, Martin Comston, Mirren Mack, and Sophie Rundle. And uh, this is a Scottish drama. We don't get a lot of stuff from Scotland, but this is a good, solid little Scottish drama um, about a couple trying to have a kid. And you think, okay, that's, um, you know, that's a, that's a really sweet thing. And then you have this accident that it, it throws them into a, a desperate, horrible situation, and it, that impacts their fertility issues, and there's all this, uh, all this other stuff then from the past gets drudged up. It's really a fascinating drama that goes in all of these different directions that you just don't see coming. And uh, it's really, really wonderful to watch. And some great performances in it. So The Nest, not to be confused with the more recent independent film, The Nest, mm. uh, that, that is in uh, likely awards contention right now. This is The Scottish Nest from, uh, from Acorn. And then we also we also have uh, let's see Mark Warren in Vandervalk from Masterpiece Mystery on PBS. Uh, this is a kind of a just a pretty solid PBS mystery um, uh, uh, detective show. It uh, you know it goes it doesn't really push the envelope in any unusual ways. It's it's pretty straightforward. Uh, it does what all of those uh, wonderful European and mostly UK detective shows do, and uh, it does it very very well. But it doesn't uh, doesn't rock the boat terribly. And then the third one here, uh, which I am a really big fan of, it, this is another masterpiece. This is uh, Sanditon. And uh, it, it's interesting because Jane Austen, like many great artists and many composers and, and, and others, left unfinished work. And this was her unfinished novel, Sanditon, S-A-N-D-I-T-O-N. And uh, Andrew Davies takes on the task of saying, why don't we finish it and finish it dramatically? And uh, there he does. It is straightforward Jane Austen, all the usual mechanics of, uh, of society and, and sexual politics that go into all of her work. 
uh, it's here, but it's stuff that we haven't seen before. It's not, you know, Pride and Prejudice. It's not Sense and Sensibility. It's not all Emma. It's not the stuff that's been done 150 times. So it does feel fresh, and they did preserve the Jane Austen sensibility to it. And I think it's absolutely wonderful. So check that out. That's on Blu-ray. Thank goodness from PBS. Yeah, I mean, I was always wondering whether or not that unfinished Jane Austen would ever get some sort of a treatment. Uh, uh, Grant Chester. Uh, let's see yeah. what season is this of Grant Chester? Looking at season five. Season five. Um, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know about the Cambridge clerk, clergyman who is so, kind of like a fa- Father Dowling sort of style series. Uh, uh, only instead of set during whenever Father Dowling was set, which I think, if I'm not mistaken, it's like during the 30s and 40s, 50s, something like that, Father something Dowling? Like some, I think uh, it was like, something. I can't remember. A little bit later. Uh, and, and that's why I think I like about it, that it's uh, set in the late 50s, early 50s, late 50s. Uh, in this village, and sort of on the eve of everything, uh, you know, well after World War II, uh, but still there are all sorts of interesting things going on in the UK that play out in the background of this series in terms of politics and uh, of the day. It's very interesting stuff. Grandchester, season five. We also have uh, from PBS um, as well, Hugh Laurie in Roadkill, uh, also from Masterpiece. Uh, Hugh Laurie, man, he just keeps working. The guy just does not go away. It's so impressive. Um, so this is this is kind of playing to some of these more recent uh, movements in the world where political outsiders, whether it's Trump or anybody else, uh, come in from, from left field and, and shake up the establishment. And uh, Hugh Laurie plays one of those kinds of figures. And um, you know, there, was a, there was a libel case that sort of made him famous and... Uh, the question is now, do we know enough about him? And there, this gets into the the, the political um, machinations of somebody that we don't know a lot about, who may or may not be what we suspect. And I'm being super, super evasive to, to not sort of reveal any of the stuff in here because um, it, it, it's all about the reveals yeah. in this. Uh, it's all about what you what you discover and and what uh, you don't see coming. So you see it for Hugh Laurie because he's really terrific. Yes, there's also. You, I'm sorry, I was going to say. Go ahead. You were just about to talk about Avenue Five. Yeah, go t- take it on Avenue Five for sure. Because he was in that too with Josh Gad, Avenue Five. Uh, it's sort of an interesting sci-fi series. This is season one. Basically, you have the crew of the sort of space cruiser that takes people on these sort of like you know. And something goes aside, all kinds of rich people who are going these sort of space journeys, you know, uh, the kind of thing you imagine Elon might be doing for yeah. rich people in a couple, couple of few years, whatever. And if, if something goes wrong and the, the ship gets thrown off course and it's going to take them several years, uh, not like Star Trek Voyager or anything like that. It's like four or five years or something to get back to Earth. And it's all about having to deal with these people uh, uh, on this uh, elite space cruising ship. Uh, for this many years, and it's you know Hugh Laurie and Josh Gad, and it's kind of funny, and I and I rather enjoyed it. Uh, this is season one. I already know that there's a season two, so it might be and that, something you can sort of like get into. And that was uh, that was for HBO. Yeah. And then from uh, Sundance, Sundance Now series, the secrets she keeps, which is a which is a pretty gripping thriller. I think you. I don't think you see this because it's it's any better than other thrillers others other tv thriller stories there's, there's just a lot of that on right now um but he, you, you are you are going to see this because it has a great great cast uh laura carmichael is fantastic on this if you saw her on uh downton abbey you know she's just absolutely wonderful she's totally different in this it takes place in australia 
Um, and it's just one of those really, really, um, one of those very smart, it's based on a novel. It's one of those very smart thrillers that, is, that seems to be about just the ordinary average lives of suburban people. And then you find out that the, 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 the things that are going on in these otherwise normal lives are not the least bit normal. And, uh, it, uh, it has some pretty, it has some pretty devastating st stuff to say about the way that our on our current world is working uh, the online aspects of it and what it's doing to our, our humanity. Um, and it's told from a feminist point of view, which I thought was, you know, uh, refreshing in a thriller. Thrillers usually kind of preoccupy us with the neuroses of men. And this, this weaves us through the, uh, the doings of women, uh, the secrets she keeps pretty great from uh, Sundance. I got two more Sundance Now series here, uh, Bad Mothers and Sanctuary. So uh, all of this, and, and I think this may be deliberate on the part of Sundance to do things that are very female-centric. Um, uh, and it's a good move, you know. Half the audience is women, so uh, you can't really blame them for, for, for doing that. Um, there's an Australian uh, uh, element to um, this one as well, Bad Mothers. Uh, it takes place in Australia. It is uh, not great, I don't think. I, it tries to sort of look at the struggles of modern motherhood and uh, and all of the, the, the baggage that now has become a part of it in recent years in our more complicated modern digital world. Um, and this looks at a very specific series of events that, that trigger a lot of this. Um, I don't think it quite wrestles with what it's trying to wrestle, but it's got some good performances. So, you know, eight episodes aren't going to kill you if you're looking for something that's kind of in that vein. Um, Sanctuary is better. Sanctuary is a lot better. Sanctuary is quite interesting and quite smart. Um, this is uh, Josefin Asplund, who is a great Swedish actress, um, is effectively, um, oh, how do I do this without giving anything away? Um, because I'm not there are certain details here. I just I, I'm not going to mention because it'll ru ruin it. She let's just say she has she's she's in the Italian Alps and she's on a um, kind of a missing person quest. I know that doesn't sound really really super cool, but anyway, um, it, 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 it from there it goes into some really fascinating places that you just don't expect. And the the alpine backdrop is beautiful and. Uh, the cast is terrific. Matthew Modine, you know, who who started playing crazy people in the first season of uh, of uh, Stranger Things, does a really good job here as well. So Sanctuary is a really really interesting thriller, and it is rightfully on Blu-ray because it looks so damn good. Uh, let's see here, Man with the Plan. I always love Joey, no matter what Joey is doing, even when he's not playing Joey, Matt LeBlanc. Matt LeBlanc. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed Man with the Plan. Uh, I have been thoroughly enjoying Man with the Plan, and I'm not terribly much into uh, sort of standard network uh, sitcoms uh, as I used to be back in the day. But Man with the Plan is one that pulls it off. I love Matt LeBlanc in this uh, sort of like, um, you know, playing this sort of blue collar guy uh, who's uh, taking care of the kids at home. Uh, and uh, Matt's funny as heck is in this thing. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm really great that he has had a couple of great series post Friends. Uh, including, what was the second act or something like the one where he played an actor and set in the UK? That was an absolutely hysterical series, too. So great work there, there, uh, Matt LeBlanc. As, you, as long as we're on this CBS Paramount stuff, uh, let me just knock out a few of these. So we've got Survivor Island of the Idols. Uh, 
I, I, there's nothing I can tell you about a Survivor series that you don't already know. Um, I have never really watched much of this thing, so I decided to kind of like, okay, let's see what all the rage is about. And, you know, it's uh, it's some fairly healthy people um, all trying to prove that they're not uh, that they're not as completely owned by modern society as we clearly know they are. Uh, so, I mean, I can get why this show was a really big deal, but there it is. It's Survivor Island of the Idols, not too different from any other Survivor, apparently. Uh, and then John Steinbeck's East of Eden, which not not the not the wonderful uh, James Dean movie. This is the television version from 1981. Uh, that was uh, really, for the most part, uh, just kind of trying to traffic on the great popularity at the time of Jane Seymour, and uh, she's wonderful in it. I don't think it's it's it rivals the the original movie at all, but certainly a version of East of Eden with Jane Seymour in it is wonderful. Cool, cool, cool. Robbie uh, was this sort of neat um, uh, television series, twenty twenty television series about this guy. Uh, who runs this sort of church basketball league. Uh, and um, he's not really a great basketball co coach or, or anything like that, but he wants to bring the team, the church league, bring the team back to its days of glory from when his father won two high school basketball championships back in the 90s, and, and he's working to do that. This is kind of a fun show. Uh, Shazir Zamata is in the show, and she's, I always find her absolutely fascinating. She used to be on Saturday Night Live and made a couple of – neat movies right before the pandemic hit. This is funny uh, and sort of pointed and kind of cool. I uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. So that's uh, Robbie. Um, uh, what is that, the first season? I think it's the first season of Robbie, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, it is. That is Robbie season one for Comedy Central. Uh, we got Love Fraud from Showtime. Uh, this was a documentary series uh, that, uh, that, that really completely – it's just it's a little like tiger king you're like these people live in my world like how did i not know this i don't even want to go out of the, out, even if the pandemic goes away if people like this are roaming around i don't really want to know these people it's very strange this looks at this guy richard scott smith who who for for 20 years for 20 years was basically an internet stalker going after women to try to defraud them and um, this series tries to turn the table on him as these women come back together to uh, seek revenge. And it is, it is alluring. It is kind of satisfying. But you feel a little bit dirty at the same time. It's a really unusual show. I, and and the, the, it kind of pushes the boundary on ethics. Like you want to see people punished, but you're like, I don't know if this is the way to do it. <laughs> uh, in any case, and then also real quickly, uh, a few other things also from Showtime is the uh, sports documentary series Outcry, um, which is a story I was utterly not familiar with. This is the story of Greg Kelly, who was a, um, a high school football star. And... Uh, he was he was convicted of sexually assaulting a four year old boy and then sentenced to twenty five years in prison, and um, the there there were questions as to whether or not he was guilty and how the conviction was handled and all of that, and this is that story. This revisits everything that happened, everything that led up to it, everything that transpired since. It's fascinating, utterly fascinating. I don't remember it making national news, but it's a great documentary series. Outcry. Yeah. And then National Geographic also has The Incredible Doctor Paul season seventeen. If you have watched any of the Incredible Doctor, uh, Incredible Doctor Paul, um, the thing that is most notable about this show about a, a veterinarian in Michigan 
is um, this guy really hasn't aged over 17 years. <laughs> so maybe being a veterinarian is a good deal. He kind of looks the same between all, all 17 seasons. I went and checked it out. I'm like, you know what? Uh, good on you. I guess taking care of animals keeps you young. Anyway, 17 seasons of uh, The Incredible Dr. Paul on uh, National Geographic is serving him well. Got three from CBS, Paramount as well. These are more recent shows. Uh, got the complete series of Carol's Second Act which is uh, Patricia Heaton in a uh, basically a medical comedy. It's not like, you know, uh, Scrubs or anything like that. But it's got its moments. I like Patricia Heaton. I think she's very, very funny. She does hold the show down uh, very nicely. And uh, this has a gag reel on it as well. Only ran for basically one season. Um, but uh, this is it. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it works. Um, we have The Neighborhood, season two, which... Mm. Um, you know, I'm trying to sort of figure out what they were uh, going on about this. You know, it's about basically um, a, a, there's a guy from uh, the Midwest who who moves to Los Angeles, and you wind up with a lot of jokes about you know the the dorky white guy who lives next to Cedric the Entertainer, and uh, I I guess I don't know. I mean, um, Jeff it's sort of funny. Seems like it's forty years too late. It does, right? It's it, it's like the Jeffersons. It's like or like the reverse Jeffersons or something. Yeah. It's like if if yeah. yeah. Anyway, I mean Cedric. Look, Cedric is is a is an incredibly talented actor, and um, I I I love seeing him work, but I I do kind of feel like there's a better there's a better place for him. And then Alan Cumming in Instinct season two. I'm also not quite sure what to make of this. Um, this is another Paramount CBS thing. Alan Cumming plays a an ex CIA guy. Uh, who um, has been who you, who wound up working at for the New York Police Department, and um, it, it's a it's kind of a yeah. I don't it's, know. it's not really a detective show because he's not a detective. Uh, yeah, you, that's the thing. It's not it's not a, it's not a cop show, but it's not a comedy. It's not quite a drama. It's just kind of it's kind of a character study, I guess, is is a way of putting it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure where this series is going. It, it sort of seems to be trying to ride on Alan Cummings' um, personality and skills as an actor, but they're going to have to give him something to work with if this is going to last much longer. I, I hope it's going somewhere interesting, but it's a it's a little bit of a of a tough slog. Yeah. What I watched. Um, and then a couple here from uh, Cartoon Network, uh, not Car Cartoon Network, Comedy Central. Sorry. Getting my cuz mixed up. Uh, <laughs> Southside South season one, um, which is which uh, I, I don't know. I don't quite understand why this is on Comedy Central. To be honest, um, this is about a couple of uh, a couple of you know community college guys who become repo men and on Chicago's uh, South Side, and it's all shot on location in Chicago. I, I, I don't quite get it, Tim. Is, is there, is there, is there a cultural element to this that I'm missing? Well, I look not deeply. So I'm not going to, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to stick that on it. This is just not all that funny. That's all. It, it fancies itself something like uh, Sanford and son, uh, you know, uh, it, without a studio audience. Without, yeah, exactly. You know, yeah, see. You know it, it's, it's nah, yeah. And see, and see, this this may be the thing. I, the other day, when we showed Hero her first episodes of The Flintstones, and she noticed something that I have never noticed before. 
She said, it sounds like there are people on the TV laughing. Mm. And I said, yeah, that's called a laugh track. And for the first time, I realized that was something I always took for granted that she does not have on her television. She doesn't understand what a laugh track is. No. And so the inverse is that if I see something like Southside and I'm not getting the prompt of a studio audience, I'm kind of not sure if I should be laughing or not. It, you, look, it's, it, what, you, it's the problem I have with community, community and with The Office and all of those shows. I kind of have the same problem. And Curb Your Enthusiasm. I know a lot of people love Curb Your Enthusiasm. Uh, that too. But, you know, I, I, I mostly wanted to punch Larry. <laughs> yeah. Watching that show. You know, I'm like, dude, you're the jerk. Anyway, it's just an interesting thing. Well, uh, similarly, I think I also kind of don't get corporate, uh, which has just finished its first season on Comedy Central as well. And this is kind of like the this is like the the white collar version of Southside, which is like these <laughs> two these two office drony guys working for this horrible, horrible company. Uh, and and everything that's supposed to, I guess, be funny about this. Like, I love Office Space. Office Space wipes the floor with me. Yeah, this is not Office Space, and I'm watching this, and it's very kind of surreal in some respects. And I don't quite know what. Anyway, this appears to be the new Comedy Central thing. So whatever. Um, knock yourself out. <laughs> uh, let's see. Few few more things here. Uh, Tim, have you watched Taken, the Steven Spielberg uh, thing? Spielberg thing. Uh, you know, a little bit of it. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. It, it's um does it feel like like i like a lot of this and this is a huge huge i mean this is this is a, just an uh for sci-fi on television this was a huge kind of uh 14 hour epic uh that back to seems, what, late 90s early 2000s yeah it, it is it's it's uh 2002 it was about 18 um, yeah, years ago dakota fanning when she was actually a little girl yeah it, it it's it's this huge i mean she's beautiful in it you know she's just a gorgeous little girl but it feels like spielberg's still trying to as a producer at least trade on a lot of the stuff that he had really moved past by that point, close encounters and ET and, mm -hmm. and, and, and you know, and all that stuff. It, it feels like he so, sort of can't let it go and he wants to just lend his name to it. It's all about, you know, the, all these interwoven stories of alien abduction and stuff that really, it doesn't really carry a lot of popular currency in the culture anymore. Um, it's very, very well done. It's very elaborate. It's just artfully, artfully executed. Wonderful performances, globe trotting, lots of you know, wonderful uh, filmmaking from a lot of different directors that Spielberg personally chose. Of those, uh, at least one or two of them. Breck Eisner knocked off one or two of those. Yeah, but but um, ultimately, it kind of left me cold. I felt like well, I'd rather watch Close Encounters. Mm. You know. I just didn't feel like like it, 15 hours of this gets me anywhere that I didn't get in two hours and 15 minutes of Close Encounters. So uh, ambitious, but perhaps uh, misguided in some respects. Mm. Um, also got some stuff from Warner Brothers here real uh, real quickly. The uh, the 100, are you a fan of the 100? Just finished its, finished its run. This is the seventh and final season here on Blu-ray. Seventh season? Yeah, I used to, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I, I was a fan of the 100 early on. Isaiah Washington, of course. Um, that sort of conceit in the early part of the series where, you know, humanity was up on that, that, um, what it was, a space station? I guess it was a space station. Yeah. A spaceship, whatever the hell it is. 
Yeah. Uh, and then some of them get sent down to Earth and what all that means. And it, and it sort of really it, it goes off in a whole bunch of different directions. But, yeah, I, I watched it for a couple of couple of two or three seasons. I was into that. It feels like a more existential version of Lost crossed with Stargate. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it feels like. Anyway, um, I, I've only seen this intermittently. So watching some of the seventh season, I'm completely lost <laughs> to, to paraphrase the word again. Um, but. Uh, you know, you, you, you kind of just assume that some of the things you're missing, you, you just go with it. Uh, so there's a lot of stuff here that I didn't really follow, but it's, it's very, very well done. So that's on Blu-ray, the seventh and final season of the 100. And then on Blu-ray or on uh, DVD only is the, uh, our three film, three series that are in their second season now, Manifest, You, and Legacies. I think of these three, I don't know if you've seen any of these, Tim. Yeah, I think of these I, three. You look, Manifest was just kind of all over the place. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, not really into it. No. It, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a good cast. Robert Zemeckis uh, was involved in, in getting this out of the... Oh, of the... People on a plane, uh, you know, the plane uh, disappeared some years ago, and then suddenly the plane reappears after many, many years, yeah. and, uh, and all these passengers are on the plane. They're the same age that they yeah. were when the plane disappeared, but X number of years has gone by, you know, on Earth or whatever you want to call it. Uh, and, yeah. and everyone else has gotten older and grown up, and you know, what happened and who did it and, and blah, blah, blah. And you isn't quite all that interesting either to me. Uh, this is, you know, a, a uh, it's about a, it's just it's just a, a regular kind of male female battle of the sexes drama. Um, I don't quite, you know, it, I just I'm not I don't find the characters all that endearing. But uh, Greg Berlanti uh, produced and, and co-wrote it. Greg Berlanti does all of the DC adaptations on. Uh, on CBS and affiliated networks, Flash and Supergirl and everything else, Black Lightning, all that stuff, uh, you know, uh, Batwoman. So, uh, and the Arrowverse, all the Arrowverse stuff. So this is Berlanti veering away from that a little bit, but it still feels very Berlanti just without superheroes. And I think I kind of need the people in tights. Uh, and then Legacies, I actually think is, is, is kind of interesting. It'll be interesting to see where this goes. The, um, this is a... Uh, this is sort of like if Harry Potter were done as a teen show, it less British, more American, and more CW, right? It's <laughs> yeah. like, let's take Harry out of the UK. Let's make them all really cool American teenagers, and we'll put them in an American high school. He's got and a that kid is a whole, a whole lot of better looking kids with way better teeth. Um, <laughs> it's true and no accents uh and that's basically what it is and uh i gotta tell you it's not harry potter but it kind of sort of works mm -hmm. <laughs> it sort of works a little bit um and then let's see we're, we're we're out of time now but let's um before we go into the doug blush interview let's just l lay out one more ultraman ultraman taro this is the this is I, I'm I'm losing track of all the Ultraman shows. I think I, I missed most of them after the original, but um, this is based on I guess this is the sixth Ultraman series from Japan, and uh, 53 episodes of this one, and it's pretty much the same stuff except he's got like horns and you know it's a slightly different outfit. But uh, I, it's still the same stuff, and I kind of, I kind of like it. It's a little bit of a different story. This is like middle seventies Ultraman, seventy, yeah, something Ultraman, as opposed to our Ultraman, which is like sixties yeah. Ultraman, exactly. Uh, you know, and all that, yeah. 
So, I, I mean, maybe I saw this when I was a kid, but uh, I do get them all kind of confused. So, anyway, this is Ultraman Taro, the sixth series of the Ultraman shows. And uh, it is on a beautiful Blu-ray uh, steelbook, like all of the others from Mill Creek. Quite a beautiful set. So, there it is. That is it for our TV and everything else this week. We will be back next week, but now we're going to let you listen to our interview with the great, the amazing, the Academy Award winning and nominated uh, great god of the documentary world, Doug Blush. Um, again, Doug and, uh, and Tim and I were all participants in a documentary uh, anthology series that Ray Green produced for the Silver Lake Film Festival many years ago mm-hmm. called The Veritas Project. We all made little documentaries, and Tim and I have, come, have gone on to host this show for you. <laughs> Doug has gone on to win Academy Awards. And uh, his film, Rock Camp, which he uh, directed and co-edited and co-produced and co-wrote, it is his baby through and through. It is an absolutely wonderful, wonderful film. You can see it now uh, in virtual cinema. We'll talk more about that at the end of the interview. But uh, without further ado, here is uh, Tim's and my interview with the great Doug Blush. It is my enormous privilege to welcome to the podcast today uh, not just a great filmmaker, but a friend. And that always makes it so much more special. Uh, Doug Blush, one of the elite uh, in the field of, of documentaries these days. Uh, it seems like every year he's, he's at the Oscars and half the time he's winning Oscars. And uh, Doug goes all the way back with us to uh, Ray Green's schlock. And it's just been wonderful to watch his career. I'm going to throw it to Tim here in a second because Doug's film is much more part of Tim's DNA than mine. Even though I love it, I, I'm going to wait and kind of I'm going to chime in because I'm a bad pianist and Tim comes from musician stock. The film, the film is Rock Camp, tells the amazing story of these fantasy rock camps that started 24 years ago as a brainchild of former sports agent David Fishoff. It's a wonderful film, Tim. I'm going to let you guys talk the talk now. Well, I, look, I'm going to start by letting Doug uh, say hello to the to the Synagogue's audience here. Uh, fans fans of yours, I can assure you, Doug, go ahead and say hello to the folks who are going to be so excited uh, to hear uh, us talking about this fantastic documentary. Well, thanks, Tim and Wade. And uh, I guess you, you have to start this off with uh, hello, Cleveland. Uh, <laughs> Just to keep in the spirit, uh, and and all the many other cities listening right now, um, yeah, and, and I, I'm just really excited to talk about this with you guys. Uh, you know, Wade and I go way back uh, to to early days of my doc work, and um, it, it's just really kind of thrilling that we've come full circle now, and we've got fun movies we can share at a time like this. So uh, yeah, I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks, guys. This is definitely definitely one of them. Doug associated with a with, with Academy Award nominated movies, uh, documentaries, Icarus and uh, 20 Feet from Stardom. Um, uh, just wonderful films that we've talked about on the show. And here we have you with this fantastic movie about this fantasy camp that's been going on. I think what what did we decided was 2025 20, 20 years. 24 years. 24 years. 24 years. Um, uh, and, and so th- this is a, this is just a fantastic situation where regular folks, uh, can come to this fantasy camp and work with and be mentored by and play with the likes of Alice Cooper and Roger Daltrey and Sammy Hagar and Joe Perry and Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley. And we can go on and on Nancy Wilson, um, um, and, and really, really rock. And we have these people from all walks of life, all walks of life, young and old. Um, uh, who 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 have all levels of skill 
and they come and they do this thing and it's just amazing you know and as a as, as an old rock and roll kid myself i gotta tell you this is fantastic dutch so where the hell did this idea come from and how did you build it out into this amazing movie well uh first of all i mean the, the, the beauty of it is that uh, sometimes fate intervenes in, in the doc world and something just kind of comes to you that just naturally fits. Um, I, I had heard of Rock Camp before, but it was one of those distant kind of wild things that was going on. I didn't know that there was a doc in progress and had been for years. Uh, they had been filming, you know, on every format known to man, and that made it extra fun making the film because we were we were literally reloading high eight tapes and uh, you know uh, flip phone video and all kinds of stuff to uh, to to go back to the '90s when this really started. Um, but uh, it was a mutual friend who called and said, you know, these guys are making this film and they've been working on it a long time, but it's it's sort of in pieces and they're still trying to find a voice for it. And I said. Well, I get to meet some rock stars. <laughs> I said, "Yeah, inevitably that's going to happen." <laughs> uh, so I pretty much dove in with uh, with the team, uh, and I found just this treasure trove of memories and and active happening things because this rock camp is extremely dynamic and it's been going uh, nonstop basically since 1997, um, and, and it's this just vast archive of wonderful moments and rock history that is untold till now. You know, these these things kind of happen quietly off in the corners uh, unless you're there and it's very loud, but uh, it's, it was just this treasure trove and I was thrilled, but I was also daunted because it was just gut loads of, of great stuff. And how did we, how are we going to figure this out? How are we going to narrow this down? Um, but fortunately we had some, some guidance uh, from previous films that were about sort of this interface between, you know, something, something that, that brings people together, like crossword puzzles, let's say, or, or some other, you know, sort of MacGuffin-y kind of thing like that. And the people themselves, you know, these great characters, both the rock stars and the uh, campers, these, these uh, as you said, these very varied and uh, kind of diverse people who we followed in the film. Uh, so we, we had a plan and uh, the plan took a while, but we got it done. And uh, now we're finally getting it out there. And I, I'm really taken by the, by the uh, response. People have been coming out of the woodwork because I think uh, there's a shared DNA with this music that we all either listened to or played when we were kids, basically, mm. you know, I grew up in Detroit, Michigan, um, listening to this music, you know, this was, this was the inevitable head banging power of turning on a car radio in Detroit in the late seventies or early eighties. And, uh, I, I literally grew up just driving poorly down the road to, you know, let's say an Alice Cooper tune or a Kiss song or, or a foreigner, you know, I got to meet Lou Graham. Oh my God. You know, it's like talking to, uh, talking to the guys who raised you outside of your home. Yeah. I, uh, Doug, I, I have to, I have to ask how much footage did you have to, to plow through? Because you just said you're dealing with years and years and years worth of stuff that they had. I mean, as a, as a guy who is a trained editor primarily, I mean, that's your bread and butter. You you think like an editor. You, you you get this giant pile of stuff dumped in your lap. Like, for example, you know, my wife has, has worked on docs. My wife was post-supervisor for uh, Buena Vista Social Club, which took over a year to edit because they had just hundreds of hours of footage. Was this that deep? Did you, I mean, was this just this daunting pile of footage that you had to go through? Oh, yeah. I mean... The fact that we had not only, you know, this archive of pretty much every rock camp 
you know, we would we'd have folders with numbers, you know, these bins with Rock Camp 42 and Rock Camp, oh. you know, 51. And each one had a different array of characters, some repeats and overlaps. But in each camp, they did something different or they played a different song or they had a different set of characters. So we had that initial load. And then there, were, there was also this fill-in that we needed to do to glue it all together with the human factor, with the campers. And that's the stuff that uh, my co-director, Renee, and I went and filmed ourselves. Mm. That, that's my proudest achievement on the film is tracking the campers themselves and going to ultimately three rock camps. I attended three rock camps uh, with our team, and we filmed each one of them in, in detail. And, and we lived the live uh, of, the, of the rock camp experience. Uh, which is really something I feel, I feel excited that I got to immerse myself in bed inside the rock camp uh, three times. And I'll probably go back. I got to be honest. Um, Cause it's just, it's enormous fun. It's just a wild experience. Well, you capture two stories there that, that, I mean, there are a lot of moving stories and there are a lot of moving stories on the part of the, the musicians too, who are moved by the people that the campers that come, but I, I watched pistol and I thought of Tim's dad Man. because all the stories Tim's told me about his dad, who's a drummer. And I saw pistol, this guy, he's just, he's connecting again to, 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 to drumming. And then the guy with the special needs son who gave up his dream uh, for his son and then comes back. I mean, I, I, you, you got me crying because both of those guys are so touching and their families are are so supportive. It just it got my it got me in the heart. And I didn't expect a movie about a rock camp to actually get me crying, but it did. See that uh, we we have a term in the in the doc uh, trenches, delicious tears. Mm. That that's music yeah. to my heart. Because <laughs> that really was our intention was not to just make a you know a superficial hey look at those great rock stars. It was what's the humanity of this you know beyond the the glitz and the flashy lights. Uh, what's what's the heart of this thing? And um, the truth is that even the rock stars, like Roger Daltrey talks about this, it's not about showing up and, you know, climbing out of the limo and having a bunch of people throw themselves at you and you sign a couple of autographs and you head back out. This was immersive, like garage band rock, mm. where these guys who have played, you know, thousands of shows and, you know, Wembley and Dodger Stadium and everything, they actually get to go into a little practice room and jam with people. You know, with with people they they don't know when they come in, and they form a band over the course of the uh, the, the rock camp, which is really something. It it yeah. really is such a happy movie. We I mean, there are a lot of very interesting stories from all of the folks in the movie. The accountant, the lady accountant, drummer, uh, mm -hmm. I, and the but the thing that I come away from uh, with all of these characters is that they are happy about the choices that they made in their life, and and one of the reasons is that they've always stayed connected to this rock and roll thing, uh, the music thing, one way or another. So it didn't really, shouldn't, it didn't matter to her that she decided to, uh, you know, become an accountant and have a bunch of kids and all that. It was all cool because that drum set was always set up out in the garage. And, and, and then you add to that this experience. Um, and, and you just have a, this film full of people who are really happy about the choices that they've made. And they're still living uh, a portion of their life as that as this, these people who they've always been. I just think that's fantastic. Yeah, well, uh, that that's really the heart of what we were going for. I mean, you mentioned Tammy, uh, Tammy Fisher, who literally is a you know a, by day a, a, a mom, you know, with a great family and a husband and a, and a whole extended family that we see briefly in the film, and and a very responsible, pretty high level exec at this you know high powered New York real estate uh, place, uh, and she's 
literally her, her escape is go in her basement and there is this unbelievable shrine to kiss, which we talk about in there. She has the ultimate kiss collection in her basement. And she's got her drum kit, which is, you know, she's got the interactive lights going. She's, I think she had a fog machine. She didn't turn it on because it would have messed up our cameras. Um, and she gets behind the skins and I, I'm, I'm going, okay, what are we getting? And she kicks into Boston smoking, which just threw me against a wall because that's one of my favorite songs when I was like 10 years old. Mm. I absolutely adored that instrumental from that first Boston album. And uh, she, she crushed it. I mean, it went, when we sunk it up to the real song, which thank God we got the rights to it, you know, for the film, um, she, she did not miss a beat. I mean, she hit every note exactly right on those, on those drums. And every, every notation is exactly the same as the, as the recorded version. And we didn't even have to change the sync of the song. It's just unbelievable. Um, so that, that, that was when I knew I was in the uh, presence of greatness when I was seeing things like that. Doug, let me ask you when you, when you're shooting those things, uh, to what degree are you already putting the movie together in your head? Do, do, because I, I've talked to some doc filmmakers who say, well, you know, I'm already putting the movie together when I'm, when I'm shooting it. I've talked to others who say, no, I don't want to get ahead of my, uh, skis. I, I want to get the good stuff and then let the movie talk to me afterwards. And I assume sometimes it depends on the movie. What, how did that process work for you with this one? Well, this was a really interesting hybrid this time because there was a, there was an existing framework of pre-existing you know, interviews with rock stars. And we had David Fishoff's history. That was kind of early. We sort of concocted what his arc would be through the film. Um, and, you know, from his early days as a <laughs> literally working the Catskills, you know, and then being, uh, being the son of a cantor all the way to becoming this empresario of these, of these rock camps. And um, that was pre-existing. And we had a lot of the archival, obviously, but we wanted to make sure we had these human characters. So we, we followed kind of the most interesting campers that we saw at the, at the first rock camp we attended. We said, we like her. He's really interesting. He's got a great story, and wow, the, the family here is fascinating. So we did what a lot of doctors do is we, we just go track stories with the hope that they would pay out. And we tracked more than we used in the film, and we probably followed about seven or eight people uh, in detail. And then we ended up using four really primary camper stories with some cameos from some of the other ones that we filmed. And there, there are a couple other great stories that we just couldn't put in the film for time's sake. Uh, but in this case, we went out looking for these separate, it was almost like mini films. We went out with the idea to create uh, the life story of each of these people as their home person and as their rock camp per, you know, persona uh, and watch that transformation. And uh, we found some great stuff. I mean, they, it just, just hanging out with uh, Scott Keller and his son, Jackson, who you brought up earlier. Uh, and Jackson was born with this sort of profound, you know, challenges when, when uh, he was born um, with, uh, with, you know, natal brain damage. And they literally brought him back from this kid will never talk or even open his eyes, you know, all the way to this kid is playing rock and roll and smiling and talking and communicating and is, is like a productive kid now. Uh, it, it's just, those are great stories. You can't write that stuff. Um, and we were just made better by hanging out and finding these stories. Uh, they really made this, the, the film just a different experience. Yeah, with that, with Doug, uh, uh, with with uh, with Dave uh, Fishoff, sort of at the at the at the center of it all, 
uh, you know, the sort of founder, I guess, creator of all of this. Talk talk a little bit about him, if you would. And, and, and he just seemed like such a jovial and wonderful guy. And, and uh, you know, a, a wannabe musician who didn't quite uh, make it there, but became the sort of person who could put elements together and created all of these just amazing uh, acts, bands, and artists. A little bit about David, if you would. Yeah, D- David is such a fascinating character because I, I always think of him as he was he was teleported in from another wilder time. You know, he he really is from that era of characters. You know, the Sh- the Shep Gordons and the and the the wild rock and roll era of of you can't believe that story really happened, and yet he's a, a an absolutely devout. Orthodox Jew, you know, and then he disappears on a Friday night and doesn't come back till Saturday evening. You know, that's that the combination of that and headbanging rock and roll is just too delicious to to pass up. So we we kind of made an extra effort to add that and add his his very proud Jewishness to the film as well. I mean, we start with him uh, riding the streets of the Fairfax district on his moped. Uh, to the to the heavy metal strains of Hava Nagila. I mean, that, that was something we we brought together. He loved it. He had so much fun doing that with us, and it's very true to his character. I mean, he is he's sort of that P.T. Barnum mixed with um, you know the great rock promoter, a little Bill Graham in there maybe. You know that there's there's this wild combination of things from his very strange and, and unique process of getting where he did through sports promotion and then finally rock promotion going out in the road with the monkeys and uh, Ringo Starr and, uh, you know, living that life and yet still coming home to, you know, be keeping kosher and everything. Uh, and then finally rock camp, which was really his genius stroke and said, how do we bring this experience uh, that I'm seeing on the road? How do we bring it to the people? How do we, how do we let people share this? And uh, he did it all by himself. It was, it was this wild idea that he came up with and uh, somehow made, uh, made grow. And now we've, we're on 70 rock camps. Well, he even says at one point in the film that he mortgaged his house to do this, which shows a level of commitment that, you know, you don't see today. I mean, that's, that's a big deal to say, I believe in this idea so much that I'm going to put skin in the game. People don't put skin in the game anymore. Yeah. David is all in. I mean, he, he would uh, literally to the last penny, he would, he would have fought for this vision. And fortunately he had some really good friends you know come in and give him good advice and sort of set up a business plan and get it all figured out how he could make this solvent and yet also get as many people to experience it from all different walks of life you know make it manageable um and and it took off and it's been going for so many years now with a lot of people coming back too that's that's when you know it's working is people love this community so much that you get repeat campers coming back you know two three five ten times uh, with different different artists to work with. And uh, Tammy's a great example. She had been before as a drummer, which is no problem for her. She's great. But she was going to challenge herself in this film to sing, which is much more vulnerable. And uh, it's, it's, it's something where she actually was allowed to try something and, and potentially fail. And it was uh, great to watch her go through it. Well, you even have a couple in the film who I think they take every vacation, they go to rock camp. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. And the look on the on the wife's face, it's like, yeah, we, we basically go here. <laughs> you can tell the husband's in seventh heaven. He's gonna go out and jam after this and she's gonna go back to the hotel room until the show. Uh it was the those those moments are just too true, you know. You know, one of one of the things that was particularly impressed 
that particularly impressed me about about this movie is is seeing these rock stars like I mean rock stars like Alice Cooper, uh, mm-hmm. Daltrey's big 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 rock stars who actually were working in the camp, working Nancy Wilson working with uh, all of these folks and how they were so utterly and completely approachable, how they were not prima donnas. You know, no matter how they strutted uh, back in the days of their greatest stardom, here with these people, these kids, of these uh, folks of different levels, they were just, they were just, they were just rocking, man. So it, it really, I don't know, it just put the lie to the notion that all of these guys are just drug-addled old nutbags, and and they're and they're <laughs> just they're and they're not. They're like these people who at one time uh, were twelve and thirteen and sixteen and wanted to rock. Uh, and uh, and they get where all of these uh, rock campers, these campers are coming from. Yeah, I think one of my favorites along that line uh, was Paul Stanley, who, you know, as, as a kid in Detroit, you can't avoid KISS. I mean, everybody's a member of the KISS Army when you're <laughs> in 1978 and you've got the bell-bottom jeans and everything. Um, but uh, here's Paul Stanley, you know, many years down the road, and he's just the most gracious guy. He's actually super enthusiastic to come and be a part of the camp. Um, it's not something he has to do. It's something that he, you know, he's, he's just really pleased to be there. And um, he, in the film, he actually gives this really kind of sort of heartfelt uh, talk about the future and why, why things are important, you know, and talking about the next generation and sharing these things. Um, and it's all, it's all real. He's a very, very warm guy, um, very, very concerned for, you know, sharing and putting stuff out there. Um, I, I, there were so many people that I got to meet. Lou Graham was incredibly gracious. And we did a, we did a longer interview that I wish I could add on the, when we have the Blu-ray extras for that. Um, but he, I, I talked about listening to Foreigner when we used to go skiing in my hometown in Detroit. And then he just waxed uh, nostalgic about how much he loved Detroit and playing there and everything. And it's just some, some other level to get to really talk to these guys and realize that they're, they're just working guys. You know, they happen to, get paid well for what they do and they get a lot of adulation, but it's work, you know, and they, they want to know that people appreciate them. Um, and it's, this is kind of one way to get close to the fans and actually not just close, but really right in the room and play with them. Yeah. Something else. Two, two things, two things I, I, I did want to make mention of real quickly. One, with respect to Fishoff and that practical joke that Joe Walsh orchestrated <laughs> is it was, was priceless because you also have the footage of it. Which is amazing. <laughs> I, it, it's it, the way it's edited together between the actual archival footage and their recollection of it, it is it is just a beautiful piece of filmmaking. And I I can't I, I want to know how how that magic happened. But I also want to just underline a great line based on what you and Tim were just talking about from Gene Simmons, where Gene Simmons says at a certain point, you know, if any of us were on the Voice, do you think we would we even get on the Voice? <laughs> and I thought. And I thought, you know, that that really speaks to the whole point of what's going on here, which is these are these are our self-made people, and they it, they don't care if somebody says you're no good, you'll never make it, that you know your your hair is too long, your voice isn't good enough. They relate to all of that naysaying that these campers have heard in their lives, they, and they don't care because they just plowed through anyway, and they built a career whether or not you know anybody told them they couldn't, and. That was inspiring to me. That just says anybody can make it, and you can. We can all stand on each other's shoulders. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a beautiful thing. Yeah, that, there's a reason that quote is in the trailer too, because I think we wanted to to point out that 
the accessibility of this, you know, and we're in that age of auto tune and, you know, your instant star because you got on TV and you blew the crowd away. Uh, that's not the course of a lot of, you know, classic rock bands for sure. From the, from that era that many of these musicians are from, it was playing in the garage and gradually building up at the local crappy bar. And then, you know, somebody notices you and maybe you get a side gig with a bigger band and, and most of them had paid those dues. You know, there, were, there was no instant fame really for very many of these, these folks, you know, back in the day. And also if you think about how wild and experimental some of this stuff was, even, even when you think of, you know, dinosaur rock and it's so predictable, it kind of wasn't, I mean, people would play in the studio and they would try things. And, and there was a lot of um, a sense of anything is possible now that, now that we're just playing around also, you know, fairly altered states of consciousness <laughs> as they were going through this. Um, and, and that freedom, that kind of like, let's break some boundaries. Uh, you still see that with a lot of great artists today, but, but it doesn't feel as raw as it did, you know? And I, I, I always hate to be the one to say, ah, my day, you know, but I think it's true. I think there, there's this organic nature to that music and the way it was produced and the way that, you know, real instruments were so important and whether, whether you were good at them or you were really experimental with them, you did wacky things with them. That was kind of the tale of the of the tape in those days, um, and also the attitude, you know, the the rock attitude, which you know, arguably there there are all kinds of issues and flaws with it too. But there's a there's a certain persona that you that you adopt as a rock and roller uh, in the classic sense, and that's part of what Rock Camp is. And there's a brief moment in the film that's one of my favorite things is one of the uh, the the older female mentors, the the camp counselors we call them who had played in all these like punk and heavy metal bands. And she's showing this group of young girls how to have rock and roll attitude, you know, how to stand and how to put your instrument across you and how to, how to hit the notes, you know, not, not just how to play and hit the right notes, but how to have stage presence and how to like come out there and be bold and be, be uh, this brash persona that sort of rock and roll demands, you know? Yeah. And it's just such a sweet moment because these girls are getting training in, in confidence more than competence and and that's it's really something to watch all, all of which can be taken back with them uh, and to the rest of their lives no matter what they're doing so whether it's giving that meeting uh you know at the down at the corporation or or or, or, or whatever it is being a doctor being a surgeon you you know you rock that you rock that stuff is what you do uh and they <laughs> and they and they know how to rock it uh no, whether it's you know it requires the instrument or not it's just really a fantastic movie uh doug and it really felt good uh, to watch it to watch it now in the midst of everything that's sort of like going on and to and, and to know that you know um uh, people are out there doing doing the things that they do and, uh, and it really comes out in, a, in an amazing fantastic kind of way yeah I, I appreciate that that sense of the the why it's coming out now i mean obviously it came out now because we got it done uh but also the timing is surprisingly appropriate i think for something like this because it's so aspirational, you know, it's, it's a film, first of all, there's, it, it allows you to escape like rock and roll does, you know, for a little while, you can pretend you're, you're the greatest star in the world up on the stage and you've got screaming fans and it's, it's aspirational and that we'll be, we'll be back, you know, we're going to come back. And right now we can't have rock camp in that sense, but it will come back and music being performed live will come back and people will start you know, playing in their garage bands. I'm sure a lot of people are recording cool stuff right now, but that experience of being in the room and just rocking out again will come back. And this this film, I hope, is kind of that 
front end of anticipating this this new era where we get our stuff back, you know, and we get to go back and do the things we love. Well, you know, it has been pointed out that there's a reason why the why World War One and the nineteen eighteen pandemic was followed by the Roaring Twenties. And uh, I think you're right. I think th- I think we're due for another Roaring Twenties. Uh, maybe not exactly all the same ways, but I think I think people want that aspirational thing. I think they 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 you know you don't know what you've got till it's gone and now people have had a taste of how much they really love all this stuff and the things they took for granted. And I think you're, you're absolutely spot on. Right. Um, it, it, let me ask you one thing just to, to, to kind of wrap out, were you editing this film primarily during COVID and lockdown? Uh, this was edited over such a long period of time and a lot of it, I, I'll give a great, great shout out to uh, my, my co-conspirator on a lot of this film, uh, Ren- Renee Barron, who did a ton of editing on this. Um, I was, you know, I was very happy to let another, another voice really kind of shape a lot of the stories once we had, uh, you know, the material in and we were dealing with all the archive. Uh, but fortunately, no, most of it was done pre COVID. The shooting certainly was. And and we were so lucky that we, we captured actually the last rock camps before COVID. Uh, the last one I went to was in Las Vegas in uh, December before COVID broke out, I think. And that was one of the most fun times we had. If I had known that I was about to lose this experience for a year and a half, you know, I would have probably uh, savored it even more. But it was it was kind of this this valedictory victory end to the process of just enjoying the process, seeing seeing the um, the people having fun at the camp. And uh, now I really treasure those memories because we had a great time shooting it, you know. Well, I, I would, I would love, I mean, I'm not going to, you know, urge you to do this, but I will, I will express the sentiment that I would love for you to do the, uh, the, the kind of seven up thing and revisit this at some point in the future and sort of see where, where some of these people have gone. Um, I'd love to know that because I'm kind of in love with these people now, both the, the rockers and the, the campers. You know, it's funny you bring that up because uh, and I, I just want to put a shout out as well to Michael Apted. I, I had the great, great honor of working with him on a late project of his, uh, unrelated to the Up projects. But, um, you know, he was an amazing guy with great stories and a true believer in, in documentary veritas, you know, in the in the process of, of being patient and finding the story. Uh, so I really miss Michael. I saw him at a bunch of events and we became friends. Um, but yeah, let's just say things have been discussed about the future of rock camp in many forms. So we will see what happens next. Tim, you have, you have any final thoughts? No, well, just, just, no, just praise is all that I have left and, uh, outstanding work. Everyone, uh, uh see this, uh, and where, where, how is it, how is it presenting in the world at the moment? Uh, Doug. Yeah, well, there's there's several layers to this, but the most exciting right now is that you all in this great audience can help your local theater uh, by watching a digital screening of Rock Camp, and you can find out where it's playing uh, on your on, in your local indie theaters. There are these these digital screenings that you can just pay a ticket price and watch it with your family and friends. I think you get a window of time to watch it when you do that. And the money goes uh, not only to help Rock Camp, but also to help your local theater, which I, you know, we're obviously all very much concerned about the future of indie cinema, especially in those great marquees you see in downtowns and 
that that makes me happy that we're supporting those kind of theaters all over the country. So if you go to www.rockcampthemovie.com, there's a complete guide. There's a ticket purchase uh, site. And again, you can find your local theater uh, if you want to and purchase it from them. And they'll get proceeds from that, which is great. So, so not um, unlike the Lemley's virtual uh, theater or something like exactly. that. Exactly. In fact, I think Lemley's is running us. Okay. So uh, <laughs> that's one of the many. Yeah. And uh, you know, like my, my my hometown of Detroit, there's a wonderful independent cinema called Cinema Detroit that's uh, that's running it right now. And I'm just very grateful that in any way we could, we could uh, help them and send a little funding that way. Sweet. That's great. And so that is again www.rockcampthemovie.com. Is that correct? Yep, and the trailer's there and a lot of other information. Great, and I'm going to make sure that that is linked uh, to our men mention of the film and this interview in the meta text for the, for the uh, podcast, and uh, the people will be able to uh, just click that link and go right there and, and find a way to see the film. Doug, thank you so much. This has been such a privilege. Um, wish you all the best with this and, and future endeavors. Really looking forward to what you do next. Is there anything that you want to plug in particular that's coming down the pike? Oh boy! Well, I mean, to keep in the uh, in the amazing music genre, definitely everybody should check out Mr. Soul, uh -huh. which uh, I was proudly a co-producer with uh, Melissa Hazlip. Who there's another case of a film that took a decade to really come to fruit, but what an amazing ride that is! I love I, mean, I love that movie. I was part of oh, the, uh, the you know, IDA, the um, Documentary mm. Association, um, and uh, it was just fantastic. Loved being able to support that film. Yeah, well, we're, we're hoping a lot of people get to see it. And everybody really will soon because it's going to be the big uh, independent lens PBS uh, event film in February during African American History Month. So we're so excited yeah. to roll this out to the world. But it is also in digital cinemas right now. Uh, if you, I, I think it's uh, MrSoulTheMovie.com. Um, and that, that's another one that, that will make you feel better about being alive now. <laughs> Uh, and and we'll show you a lot of the history of where where we were and where we should be going. Mm. Yeah, outstanding. The, Doug Blush, it has been a privilege to have you uh, on the podcast. Wish you all the best with it. Uh, Tim and I will will sign off now, and uh, we encourage all of our listeners to uh, to go to the site www.rockcampthemovie.com. Find where you can support your local theater and support the film. The film is Rock Camp. And it will it will set your heart uh, it'll it'll set your heart aflame in the rockiest possible way as we uh, come to the end of this um, pandemic and uh, it'll give us a, a, a it's it's just a wonderful shot in the arm for what comes next. Thank you, Doug. Well, guys, thank you so much. Rock on, everybody. Thank you. <laughs>